Well, good morning. Thank you. Appreciate the enthusiasm, Calvert. I heard you. Thank you, brother. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. I pray that we would never grow tired of hearing that you forgive sins, God. If that's boring to us, or if we came expecting to hear something more, um, I pray that we would see how sinful that we are in our hearts so that we're grateful to hear that news, Father. Make us grateful to hear the same news that we hear time and time again, and let us not take for granted the amazing things that you've done for us. So be with us right now as we sit and read and hear your word. I pray that we would leave out here joyful, rejoicing in the fact that uh, we have a God that knows the worst things about us but loves us deeply, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week, um, after we left from church, I got a chance to marry some good friends of mine that I've known for years and years and years. And so it was a great time. Um, Dan and Toy, they were a part of this church. They were going on their honeymoon, um, and they, they came back. I don't see them here, so they may still be gone enjoying the time there. Um, so when they do get back, though, um, there's one piece of advice that I'm going to give them. And the piece of advice that I'm going to give them is this. Honeymoons don't last forever. For those of y'all that are married, y'all know that to be um, very, very true. For those of y'all that aren't married, marriage is just a, a backdrop. Think of any relationship that you have. And one thing that I'm pretty sure of is relationships don't stay the same way that they start. Right? Though they may all start off good and great, and you talk and rejoice about how much y'all have in common, sooner or later, conflict comes in. And the reason why conflict comes in is because in a relationship, anyone, you have two people that don't always agree on everything. If you're in a relationship, and you feel like we always agree, we never have conflict, I want you to know that's not true. It's just that the person that doesn't have conflict isn't saying it. <laughs> so regardless of the peace that we may feel, you put two people into a relationship and conflict takes place, and here's what conflict does. Conflict makes you choose some type of action. You either struggle or you surrender. You either fight or you follow. That's true of not just all of the conflicts that we face in the relationships that we have, but if Christianity is really about a relationship with Jesus and we treat our relationship with him as if we're in a relationship with a real person and not an imaginary friend, then what's going to take place is there will be conflict. A famous pastor once said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. If we find ourselves in relationship with Jesus and it seems like 
He never really disagrees with us or the way that we live our lives or the things that we do. And as we go through life, we go on and on and on. And there is no conflict with what Christ tells us to do and what we want to do. It's likely Jesus is nothing more to you than an imaginary friend. Somebody that gives you a bunch of good things but never really asks and, and anything from you. But for those of us that really know what it is to be in relationship with God, we know what it is to be in conflict and to struggle and to fight, and we know what it feels like to be, all right, I don't want to fight with Jesus, right? I don't want to conflict with the things that he tells me to do. But in the same vein, there's times where I don't really want to follow the things that he tells me to do. There's times that it seems like if I'm going to be obedient, it feels like this death sentence. To follow what he calls me to do, it doesn't feel like it's going to lead me to blessing. It feels like it's going to lead me to punishment. To have to submit to a husband or to, or to love my wife when she is not lovable or to forgive somebody that's of offended me or to serve my church, or to use money the way that God has told me to use money, or whatever it is in your life right now that you're struggling with, we all get to these points where we don't want to fight with God, but we don't want to follow Him either, because to obey the things that He's called us to do feels like a, a death sentence. And if obedience to Jesus anytime feels like a punishment to you, it feels that way because deep down inside, regardless of the things that I say or we say, we don't trust them as much as we say that we do. And if we don't trust them, it's probably because we don't know him well. What he's done time and time again is prove the fact that he's absolutely trustworthy. So all of those that really know him, trust him. They don't fight with him, they follow him. But those that tend to fight with him and find themselves in conflict with him or view the things that he says as a death sentence, it really comes because we don't know him as well as we think that we do. And so the conflict with him is going to last as long as there's one or there's at least one imperfect person in the relationship with Jesus. And one thing that we can be assured of is regardless of the work that he does in our lives, we will be imperfect until the day that he comes to get us, which means as long as we exist on this earth, we will find ourselves at times with in conflict with Jesus. And when we're in conflict, it shows that we don't trust them like we should. And when we don't trust them like we should, regardless of how long we said that we've known him, at the end of the day, it means that we really don't know him as well as we think that we do. So our goal, the reason why we're trying to spend time from now until the rest of the year going through the Gospel of Mark is so that we all can get to know Jesus a little better so that at the end of the day, the better that we know him, the easier it will be for us to trust him. And so for that, we're going to stay and talk in Mark chapter 2. Here's what takes place. If you look at the Gospel of Mark, it starts off the, men, uh, the same way that many of the re relationships start off that you and I find ourselves in. Mark 1 is filled with 
celebration. Things are good, great. Jesus is on the scene. He does all of these things that God tells him to do. And his authority in the world brings celebration. Mark tries to paint this picture that Jesus is God's perfect servant. And that's true and that's good. But here's what takes place. In our hearts, we look at Jesus as God's perfect servant. And we tend to treat him as if he's our personal butler. And those two are not the same thing. So at the end of one, Jesus does all of these great things and people want to be with him because of all the great things that he can do for them. And in Mark 2, Jesus is going to start this conflict. The thing about us is that there are many conflicts that are stopped, for those of y'all that are married, simply uh, with the word Nothing, right? So your wife will say, what's wrong? Nothing. Or you'll ask your sweetheart, what's wrong? Nothing. It's clear that there's something wrong, but we can tend at times to use our words to kind of create this false sense of peace. Jesus is not going to let that take place. And one thing that we can be assured of is that there's constantly going to be conflict in our walks with Jesus because man looks at the outside. All we can see is the outside, but Jesus sees the heart. The very first point is this. Jesus sees the heart. Starting in 2, verse 1, it starts off and says this. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Take a step back and remember, this is a real story. This actually took place. So think if this was you. Think of this was your house. So you're in this house. Your house is packed. Jesus is there preaching, sharing all of these things. And you know this is a man that's healed countless folks. And so what takes place is there's these four guys. They have this friend that's lame. The house is packed so they can't get in. Picture if this is your house. And all of the sudden... People that are in the middle of the room start to move. Why do they move? Because somebody's tearing your roof off. And as they tear off your roof, they let this guy down. How would you feel if you go home and your house is packed and somebody comes in through your roof? You're frustrated. But these folks here may think, well, wait, wait, wait. Jesus is here. Somebody's going to come down through my roof. He can't walk, but Jesus is going to heal him. So it's cool. I mean, if my roof is destroyed, I get to see Jesus heal somebody. So folks are standing out there. They're waiting, and verse 5 takes place. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, 
son, your sins are forgiven. If this was you in your house, how would you feel? This is a great, this is a great truth, but doesn't it feel a little deflating? Don't you feel a little disappointed? You would step back and think, ah, this is gr great, but I'd much rather see this guy that's lame stand up and walk. And, and that's the very first thing. It shows that in our hearts, even as Christ starts and speaks right to the heart of things, we're discontent with that. Right? He is getting ready to say your sins, all of them, are forgiven. And we would come to this and say, man, I'd much rather see more. We see it in the way that we choose churches. I talked to a guy at a party on Friday, and what he said was he came and he sat up and he's like, man, I love my church. And he's like, man, you know, we talk about the gospel week in and week out. And he's like, man, all of that's good. Ah, but I think that I'm going to leave. I'd much rather be in a place where you know, I can hear more about 10 steps to a better marriage or these things. And so there's all of these things that he wants to hear and wants to learn and wants to grow in. And he sat there and talked. And it's just so easy to dismiss the gospel as if the forgiveness of sins. Well, yeah, yeah, I know that. What else? So Jesus, who spent time healing folks, starts off here, and, and the very first thing that he says is this, your sins are forgiven, clarifies the reason why he came here to the earth. If you think the reason that Jesus came here to the earth was just to heal folks of the things that were wrong with them in the here and now, that's not what he came for. He's God's perfect servant, meant to address the most pressing needs of our life. He's not our personal butler meant to give us our best life now. And he makes sure that that's abundantly clear here. And then look here at verse 6. It says this, now some of the scribes were sitting there and hear these words, and they questioned in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? So you have a group of folks that see it, and the thing that you see here in the text, they don't say anything. They question in their hearts. And Jesus comes and he's the one that starts this conflict. These folks could have just said what they had to say in their hearts and left. And things seemed like they would have been fine. But Jesus comes in and it's so funny that you have this group of folks that are like, well, in their hearts, who can forgive sins but God alone? And the irony is that Jesus is proving that he's God in that as we read here, man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. He answers what they just say in their heart. Which means this. Jesus is not just concerned with our actions. 
He's concerned with the state of our hearts. Jesus is not just concerned with words that are directed to him or said about him. He's concerned with wrong thoughts that are had about him. And he sees it all. If your think of this, if your spouse or your roommate, imagine with me, if they could read your heart, if they could read your mind. Some of y'all in here do have spouses that think that they can read your mind, but they can't. But if they could, do you think you would have more conflict or less conflict with them? More. Because every question about how was this meal, how do I look in this dress, you can't say anything that would bring down the conflict because they see all the heart. It comes up to the front. It's exposed. So the very first thing that we see here in this text is Jesus doesn't just look at actions. He doesn't just look at the outside. Jesus looks at the heart. And what that means is that if you're here and you think Jesus is pleased with you because of the things that you've done, your problem is a whole lot bigger than the things that you do or don't do. If you think the biggest problem that you have is the fact that I've messed up or done wrongly or misspoke, this text right here shows us that's not the biggest problem that you have because we find ourselves in relationship with a God that doesn't just see the things that you and I do, but He sees the state of our heart. And so in front of Him, what that means is that all of us are on the same playing field. And this is what I love about the Gospels here because as Jesus is getting ready to move and to show us how he forgives sins, who's the first people that he finds himself in conflict with? Not the sinners, not the prostitutes. The people that he gets in the most conflict with are the people that are the most outwardly impressive. Are the people that know the most about God's Word and God's Bible are the people that grew up in church, are the people that are on time to, to church, the people that he gets in conflict with, are the people that would find themselves in a place like this on Sunday morning. Jesus sees the heart. If you think that you're okay because of the things that you've done, you're not. Though the outside world would look at you and be very impressed. It's those things about you and your nature that nobody else knows or sees because you've done a good job of being able to hide those things. Jesus sees all of those things with crystal clear precision. Jesus sees the heart. The first thing that that should do, and this is just a side note as we move on, is this. The truth is Jesus sees the heart. Do you know what that means? It means that you don't. 
It means that as we find ourselves in relationship with people or conflict with people, the worst thing that you can do is live and talk and interact with them as if you can see the depths of their heart in the same way that Christ does. You can't. So a helpful piece of advice is start with questions before you form conclusions. Be reminded of the fact, I can't see your heart, so I can ask. And the best that I can do is to give the benefit of the doubt. So this text starts off in conflict. There's going to be much conflict in between us and Christ because Jesus does not just look at the outside. He sees the heart. All of us are on the same plane. We can't mask or hide the things that are wrong with us. They're crystal clear. They're out there. And Jesus himself is God, which means this. He's just. Part of being just is that you just can't let things slide. You and I would be very frustrated if on our way home we get mugged and there's a cop on one side of the street and he just lets it go and says, well, I'm sure they'll be sorry later. We would be mad. We want somebody to do something about the things that are wrong. And because Jesus himself is God, as he sees all of these things, he's not just going to let them slide. He can't. And so what takes place is as sure as Jesus sees all of our hearts, he doesn't just let things slide. But what he does is Jesus exposes our hearts. He sees it so it's clear to him. And what he's going to do through the rest of this time is he's going to expose it so that it's clear to all of us. This right here, this story and passage, the one string that ties all of this together is the fact that in every one of these stories, Jesus finds himself in conflict with people. Out of five stories, there's only one story where they actually go and talk to him. But every time that they do something, Jesus goes and he talks to them. And he escalates things. So look, so what starts here is just guys that are grumbling. Moves on to Jesus finding himself in a place with people that are sinners. And they're rejoicing because of the forgiveness that he gives. And on and on and on, the people that have their lives together look in and criticize the things that Christ does, and he goes to them and talks and talks and talks. And Christ points things out, and he escalates this conflict until we get to the third chapter. And look at this right here, just so that you all can get a picture of what takes place. And again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. Look, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, a group of folks that are quiet, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill. Now that's a pretty weird thing for him to say. Because even if he didn't heal this guy, it didn't mean that he was going to kill him. So this is not Jesus contrasting his actions. This is Jesus contrasting him 
with the guys that look on, those that claim to have their lives together. So in verse uh, 5, it says this, And they looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Look here at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against them, how they might destroy him, or it is how they might kill him. So Jesus says, wait, wait. There's a group of folks or a group of guys that says that their aim is they're trying to protect the integrity of the Sabbath. In this day and age, you weren't supposed to work on this day. But Christ comes down and says, hey, 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 what's better to do on this day, to heal or to harm, to do good or to kill? And they don't say a word. And Christ comes in and says, and he heals this man. So Christ does good. And then these guys that have an outward appearance of things being good, they leave there, and it's at that point that they plot on how they're going to kill Jesus. As Jesus interacts with these guys, he doesn't create this sin in their heart. All that he does is he exposes this sin that's, that's in their heart. He escalates this conflict, and it seems like he goes through this time and he constantly just pushes their buttons in order to bring out or to bring to the forefront what it is that's really wrong. We may look at that and feel like, man, Jesus is an instigator, right? We've all had friends that instigate, that it, they take things that are small and they just have this knack of trying to make those things big and huge. And you have to sit and say, it's not that big of a deal. Jesus is not like that. Jesus is like a home inspector. He takes things that look small and says, hey, this is not as small as it is. This is a really big deal. So my wife and I were on a contract for a house um, here in Westview. And so we walk in and go and look at the house. And the house looks pristine. I mean, it looks gorgeous on the inside. So we're ready to go all in on the house, and we call an inspector. And what he does is he comes on the inside of the house, and as he kind of looks and points at things and looks at points at things and looks and points at things, he writes out this long list. And at the end of the day, he's like, this house may look very, very good on the outside, but he's like, there are so many problems. Right? So we walked in the house and there was these small cracks in the kitchen. So we think, hey, some, uh, somebody just has to come and fix up these cracks. But he goes up into the attic and it's like, ah, there's stuff wrong with this whole roof and that's why the, the cracks are there. We walk into the basement and there's this strong smell and we're like, well, somebody needs to fix this smell. He walks down there and says, there's that smell because there's all this mold here. And there's HVAC here in the basement. Your AC and all of that stuff is here. So what takes place is things may look good right now, but in the summer, if that mold sprouts, it can get up through the vents and it can get in the house and it looks pristine and it looks clear. 
but it'll make you real sick and it'll kill you. Or, or it could, not it will, but same thing, kind of. So here's the beauty of what Christ does. As he comes here into this world, the people that he's most in conflict with are the people that tend to look the most pristine on the outside. Or the people that tend to think that they have it all together. And so what it does is it reminds us as long as our sin is hidden, you and I can think that our sin is absent. As long as our sin is not as out there as the rest of the folks that we see, it's easy for us to think that we don't have as big of a problem. So as Jesus comes here on the scene, what he's going to do is he's going to expose that even in the best performers, even in the most religious, there's a heart that doesn't like the authority of God. There's a heart that doesn't like somebody else dictating how it is that we live our lives. Even in the most devout heart, there's still that heart that would say, if I have to choose, if I'm going to fight Jesus or follow him, I'd much rather fight him so that I can have my own way. And so as we go through the Gospels and as we look at this, here's where exposure is a good thing for one group and a very bad thing for a, a, another group. As you walk through this story, there are people in the Gospels that are at an advantage when it comes to embracing Jesus as a Savior. And it's those people whose sin is already exposed and it's out there. And so what takes place is for those that acknowledge or admit their sins, they're ready to receive a, a Savior. So you look here at chapter 2 and what takes place is this. Uh, in verse 13, it, it says, He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him. And he taught them. And as he passed by, listen, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and did. This is a guy in this day and age, a tax collector, was a guy that was a Jew but worked for Rome. Rome was a, a, a government that oppressed them. And so this guy would sit and he worked for a group that was oppressing his own people. And more than that, what he did was he stole from them. So it's not just bad enough that he takes money to fund a group that are trying to oppress his own folks. But it's that he takes more money than he should and he builds this fortune. So folks looked at guys like him as the most vile of sinners. So it was clear he was a guy that wore this on his sleeve. And the rest of the folks here, it said Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. 
Pharisees come to him and say, why does he eat with sinners? Jesus is with these group of guys and he says, well, I came here for sinners. And the people that he was with, they weren't mad and offended. They didn't stand up and say, hey, Jesus, I thought that we were cool. Why are you calling me a sinner? They were a group of folks that already knew what they were. Their sin was exposed. They didn't spend time trying to hide or trying to be something that they weren't. It's always clear to God the state of our heart. The problem is trying to make it clear to all of us the state of our heart. And so in God's grace, Jesus comes in and He doesn't let our sin stay hidden. He exposes it. Brings it to the forefront. It's clear as day. And the responses here are crazy. So the people whose sin is clear and apparent to them, they're drawn to Jesus. They flock to Him. The people who are the most pristine on the outside and their sin is not exposed, they conflict with Jesus. They fight with Him. Not because they don't have sin, but because in their minds it's not exposed. And my wife and I saw this, I, I think, very, very clearly when we first moved to Atlanta. Um, we, lived in, uh, we lived in Buckhead for the first year and a half in an apartment. And so what took place was is we were there, we worked for them, and our goal was to try to put on these uh, events, and we worked for a group as well where the goal was to use the events as a platform for the gospel. And what took place was, as far as ministry was concerned, that year and a half was probably the hardest for us. Because we found ourselves in a context where it's not that people didn't have sin. It was just that they had enough money where they could hide their sin. And it wasn't as clear. It, it, it wasn't as much at the forefront. And so what took place was it caused them to live these lives where it was easy to believe that just because my life doesn't look like the lives of some of the folks that live in parts of Atlanta that aren't Buckhead, I'm good. I'm a good person. I do the things that God's called me to do. I serve. I go to church. And they live these lives where their sin was hidden, and so it seemed as if their sin was absent. But for a God that sees the heart, He's not going to let that fly. He's going to expose that. Unless we think that that's just aimed at folks that have money and we wouldn't put ourselves in, in that same boat. It takes place everywhere. So uh, I was at the Popeyes across the street a few months ago with a group of interns that were in town. And so as we sit there and talk, there's a guy that comes up to the table um, and it's clear that he's on something. It's very, very clear. So he asked for a few dollars. And I'm like, man, I'm not going to give you any, any money. And, and he's like, well, I need it to get some food. 
So I'm like, all right, I'll buy you food. So I sat there and I bought him food, a good meal, $10 meal. It can get you a lot of stuff at Popeye's. <laughs> so he has the receipt in his hand. Well, then what takes place is as I, I sit on one side, there's a guy on the other, other side of the restaurant. And he looks and he calls the guy over. The guy comes over. He gives him $2 and takes the receipt from the guy. Well, I'm mad because I just spent 10 bucks. So I go over and I talk to him. And I said, hey, man, I bought him food because it's clear that, man, he doesn't need that. And what this guy said was, yo, people like that don't change. I've got kids that I've got to feed at home. And so I'm going to give them this, and I'm going to take that, and I'm going to go and feed my kids. And in his mind, it was okay for him to do what he did because of a good cause. I've got kids to feed at home. And that is a very, very good thing. However, that's no excuse for exploiting somebody else to do this good thing. And the best place for sin to hide is in the cloak of these good acts. Well, I just did it because I've really, really got to do this. That didn't reveal that he had a heart for his kids. What it did reveal was that in our hearts, there's a selfishness that will exploit anybody or anything if it means that I can do what I need to do. Sin can be cloaked in the guise of very, very good things and good acts. And this great God, this Jesus, doesn't just let things slide. He doesn't just let them fly under the radar. What he does is he exposes all of the sin that's in our heart. So one, it sobers us and gives us a good view of ourselves. It reminds us that regardless of how much people are impressed with me and the way that I live my life, regardless of how much folks would laud me and applaud me for the things that I do, there is a God that deals with the heart and he's going to relentlessly do all that he can to bring it to the surface. But the fact that Jesus exposes our sin, it doesn't just sober us up about ourselves sobers us up about others. That as we look at people, even the worst of offenders and the worst of sinners, we don't do so as people that look through a window out at them, but we look as people that stand in front of a mirror and say the worst of things that take place out there. I'm reminded that that same capacity is inside of me. That if not for the grace of God, the things that I look at on the outside that disgust me and appall me that I would be willing to throw stones at, if it weren't for the grace of God, that's me. That's the same thing that's inside me. And it humbles us. And it reminds us that even those of us that have moved in here from the outside. We don't come into here with the aim of 
we're trying to save folks, we're better than they are because we don't deal with the same things that they do? No, that's the heart of somebody that doesn't get it. Somebody that really gets it says, no, I come into the context not because I'm unique, but I'm exactly the same as all of them. And God's grace on my life has been great in that He's exposed me of my sin. My sin has come up to the forefront. And so now as I come in, I don't come in with the posture of somebody that's better. I come in with the posture of somebody that has a better hope. If you think of yourself as a little sinner, you only need a little Savior. And a little Savior is not going to require very much of you. But if you think yourself as a big sinner, then you know that you need a big Savior, and a big Savior is going to require your whole life. And this is where we conflict with Jesus. Because at the end of the day, most of us don't think of ourselves as big sinners. So when he asks for a whole life, it seems like he's asking for too much. Jesus sees our hearts. It's clear as day what goes on on the inside of us. And he's not going to let it slide. So he'll go to great lengths to expose our heart, to expose the nastiness of all that's inside. And it's not a punishment. He exposes our heart because he doesn't want things to stay the way that they are. He exposes our heart so that we can see and know that the same Jesus that sees us, that sees the depths of what's wrong with us, the same Jesus that exposes what's wrong with us, is the same Jesus that can actually heal hearts. We serve a God that heals hearts. That's why we gather week in and week out. That's why we sing the same songs that talk about the same thing, because we come in to celebrate what God has done. People that don't celebrate what God has done, that says more about our hearts than it does the worth of what God did. We get bored too easily. And all that that means is that we think of ourselves as little sinners because our sins aren't as apparent or clear. But look at this. Look at this great God that heals in chapter 2, verse 8. Starts off in or verse 9. As Jesus is getting ready to heal, look what he does. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? So he starts off and, and says, all right, which one? He comes into a room and says, y'all tell me which one is harder. Which one is harder to verify? The fact that a lame man gets up and walks or the fact that somebody's sins are forgiven? And Jesus says, take your pick. Tell me which, which one's harder. And I'll do the harder so that you'll believe me when I talk and say this. Verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise. Pick up your bed and go home. And so what he does, 
is he shows Jesus' power here in the gospel and in the Bible is meant to accent his purpose. It's meant to remind us, those of us that would look at somebody else or those of us that would look at ourselves and say, it's impossible for me to change. Those of us that would look and, and say, I'm a lost cause. Those of us that would look and say, it's hopeless. There's no way that I can get over being enslaved to porn. There's no way that I can get over these thoughts that I have. There's no way that I can get past treating my wife or my spouse in the way that they do. There's no way that I can get past the bitterness and the unforgiveness. Those of us that would look at our lives and say, it's impossible. Jesus is saying, show me everything that you think is impossible and I'll do those things just so that you know that it's not a lost cause. If you think it's impossible that a blind man would see, Jesus says, I'll do that. If you think it's impossible that a lame man will walk, I'll do that. If you think it's impossible that a leper could get healed, I'll do that. If you think it's impossible for somebody to be raised from the dead, I'll do that to show you that Jesus really can heal hearts. He really does it. The only reason why we're up here week in and week out, and I wish that you would hear this, I wish we pray. The only reason why we're up here is because we really believe. Because he's really done it. The funny thing about this story is throughout the Gospels, when Jesus talks about this concept of repentance of sin and following Jesus, there's this one story that we all know and love and hear, the story of the rich young ruler, right? And he says, it's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven because he has all that he needs. And after Jesus heals this lame man, the very next story that we get is Jesus going to this tax collector, a guy who has all that he needs, and saying, follow me, and the guy turns and comes. And he doesn't just turn and come, but the very next scene is a party or a feast where this guy that is known as the most vile of sinners brings a group of folks that are categorized as sinners and don't take an offense when they're called that, and they all come and they spend time with Jesus. The message of the gospel, the work that God has done, that Jesus actually saves sinners, it's an attractive thing. That's what draws folks in. That at the end of the day, this is the gospel. The message of the gospel of what, or what Christ has done is not I'm going to overlook your sins. That's not what he does at all. What he says is, I'm going to look your sins over, show you that they're worse than you thought that they were, but still at the end of the day, give you forgiveness. And the, this story ends off on this low note. Jesus keeps poking and prodding and poking 
and prodding until the Pharisees decide that they're going to kill him. Listen, if Jesus never exposed their sin or the state of their heart, they wouldn't have tried to kill him. He exposes their sin knowing full well that he's going to be the object of their murderous hearts. And he's going to die for... Jesus goes to the cross because he exposed the sin of the very people that he was trying to save so that when he goes to the cross and dies on the cross, he can say things like, Father, forgive the very people that killed me. I don't want people that murder to think that I'm not going to forgive them. I was the one that brought murder to the forefront so that they would see that I'm willing to forgive. And like a surgeon, we serve this great God. That he does wound us. It does hurt. But the only reason why he exposes all of this stuff is not to embarrass us. It's not to punish us. He only exposes it so that he can heal us. And not just so that he can heal us, but that he can transform us. And that we could do like so many of the folks did here in this text. Every time Jesus mentions the forgiveness of sins, there's not just one person. There's a crowd of folks. There's a crowd of folks that flock to him. Levi brings this crowd of folks. All of us that really grasp what it is that God has done for us, it's not a thing that you can keep to yourself. You can't. Because if you know of your great sin, I guarantee that you know people that have sinned in the same fashion, and you know people that feel condemned or lost like they don't know what to do with their sin. And the beauty of what we have is we can say, come and meet a man who knew everything about me, looked my sins over, told me that they were worse than they were, but forgave me. And so now my life is characterized not by this moderate affection towards Jesus, it's characterized by a celebration and a joyful pursuit. I want to do all that I can to make sure that people see him. So as you come into church week in and week out, and as we don't really have a sense of who all comes in and comes out, what you'll see as you come in is you'll see folks that are at the door, and they'll sit there and greet you. And so what they do is they say, I want to serve this way because I don't want any distractions to get in the way of folks hearing about the great things that God has done. Or there's folks that are back there with your children, and they're saying, I want to love and care for them, instill in them these same truths, but do all that I can to make sure that there's no distractions for people hearing about Jesus. There's countless folks that have moved here because they've said, I want to be sure that nobody that lives here in southwest Atlanta does not have a picture of what God has done, not just on Sunday, but through the course of the week. 
That's why we op open our homes the way that we do. It's not just for programs. It's not just to get more folks into here, but it's to look at all the people that are out there that have no clue of how they can have their sins forgiven to be reminded of the fact that we serve a God that does forgive, and we're going to take advantage of every opportunity that we have to make sure that that message is not just looked over, that that message is not just something that's treated as unimpressive. We're going to make sure that that message lies at the core of all that we do. What an amazing God that would go through conflict with us. What an amazing God that wouldn't back down the way that we do for this false sense of peace. But he would sit inside of our mess. He would endure with us. He would continue to poke and prod just so that it would come to the forefront so that you and I can have the only thing the Bible requires as a prerequisite to rejoicing in the forgiveness of God, and that's a humble and a contrite heart. He not only gives us sight of our sin, but he shows us how deep it is so that you and I have sorrow of our sin, for our sin. And we go to Jesus as a savior and not just a servant, somebody to do the things that I need him to do. Let's praise God for this great truth, the great gift of his son. Father, Father, more than, more than advice, more than steps, more than things that we have to do, um, at the end of the day, we just need news, Father. There are so many problems and concerns that can't be talked about or addressed or worked through, Father. But at the heart of all of those things is just a feeling of lostness. You know how many of us in here feel like we're a lost cause, like there's nothing that we can do. And I pray that you would remind us, Father, that as long as your son is in the picture, there's no such thing as a lost cause. Help us to trust you, Father. Help us to trust you, to not fight with you, but to follow you wherever you call us, Lord. There's freedom to be found in the gospel, and I pray that we would find it. I pray that that would be the source of our comfort and our joy. Lord, if there's anybody in here that doesn't know you or hasn't experienced it, I pray that right now you would just poke and prod, Lord. You would impress on them that even now in their seats, Father, they can put their trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.